just to let you know, um, go to our website, www.emi-ministry.org, and then you can find it accordingly, okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I, yeah. yeah, they're free. I got some, we brought some extra CDs. If you guys want some, they're free. Just go back there. You can have them. It's no problem. Just take them. It's okay with me. Um, and by the way, there, I, I think we have other bo- other books and PDF files on there, don't we? Like the, the, the don't we, didn't we do the stuff on the Reformations, the, the PDF, those books? Yeah, there's a couple of books. You're going to want those books too. They're really good books. Um, so, but whatever. So you got a chance to get that. All right. Now that we got that, we're, we're good to go. Let me turn this on. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to come together to study. Please bless us. I know that we're tired. It's been a long day. We do pray that you'll guide us and keep us now. And uh, help me, dear God, to speak the words of life. So bless each and every one. May the Holy Spirit be poured out upon us. May the angels of the Lord keep watch. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's see if I can remember how to work this thing. Where do I point this set? Okay. Sensors. Okay. Let me see. Okay. Beautiful. Now, I'm going to skip analysis of 10. Okay? Let me just get to where I want to go. Okay. Now, we're going to... We're going to dovetail a little bit of what we were talking about this morning. And uh, what we're going to look at, though, is some aspects of Daniel 11. Now, in order for this to, or at least to somewhat resonate with you, I'm hoping that you have some knowledge of what's been going on in this world besides the pandemic. In other words, uh, other things that have been happening. Now, you know that recently... Um, well, since since Trump's been elected, it's been brought to the forefront, and that's the uh, China and uh, America's relationship with China. There is great contention over those two countries, and uh, I think that when we look at what's going on in this world, I, I can't help but think it it really comes a part of uh, to be a part of Bible prophecy. And I'll explain why I say that, particularly in relation to Daniel 11. Now, Daniel's last vision is a very important vision. As you know, having studied the book of Daniel, Daniel 11 is built upon the previous vision of Daniel 8 and 9. 
Now remember, the, I put those visions together, 8 and 9, because 9 is a continuation of Daniel 10 or Daniel 8, because remember, Daniel fainted before Gabriel could give him the full revealing of what was going to happen. So remember, 9 is a continuation of 8. The 70 weeks are not separate from the 2300 days. They both start exactly at the same time. So just to let you know and understand, so 8 and 9, right, is, is, is Daniel 10, 11, and 12, which is the, the last division of Daniel, is built upon the previous vision of Daniel 8 and 9. Now, Daniel 8 and 9 is built upon the previous vision of Daniel 7. But Daniel 7 is built upon the previous vision of Daniel 2. And Daniel 2 is the cornerstone, not only of the book of Daniel and the prophecies that, that follow, but also the book of Revelation. Now, you know that Daniel is, a pro, is the prophecy. Revelation is the unfolding or the revealing of what's hidden in Daniel. So what's not necessarily all that clear uh, is further enhanced in the book of Revelation. And what even may be clear in Daniel is further enhanced in the book of Revelation. So Daniel and Revelation obviously go hand in hand. It's not one versus the other. They um, coexist to to uh, uh, give us a broader picture of what God is saying is going to take place at the end of time. Now, Daniel, both in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, you find that you can divide those, the, the concepts and ideas of, of the prophecies both in terms of civil issues and religious issues. For example, in Daniel 2, you see civil powers, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and pagan Rome. Same thing in Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 8 is uh, left off Babylon, of course, no longer relevant to the pertinence of the vision. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 again starts off with the same as Daniel 8, Medo-Persia, and then goes to Greece and Rome both pagan and then papal. So, and again, it's civil conflict. Now, it doesn't mean it excludes any elements of religion or the religious components in the prophecy because the only reason these powers are mentioned because they have a direct correlation to what happens to God's people during that period of time. So, in other words, for example, do you think they were the only countries in the world? Of course not. But they played the key role uh, in terms of world politics and also in direct relation to God's church. Okay, so there's a correlation, and that you have to see. Now, uh, you know, it's true. In Bible prophecy, you're going to have to study some history. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's a fact. There's just no way you're going to be able to understand what he's talking about in terms of the fulfillment and, and, and the implications of where he wants to take you. So there has to be some knowledge. Now, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar, but you do have to have some knowledge of what's going on. Um, and there's a divine reason as to why God has mentioned particular kings at a point in time, uh, certain events that transpire um, during that period and so forth. It's because it has a significant impact on the church. In other words, there are lessons that you can extract from that 
as a forewarning of what is to be. For, I'll give you a classic example. You can look at Daniel 3, Daniel 6, and even Daniel 5 for that matter, and extract vital lessons that would apply for us today. In Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, they're almost identical. You got the image of, uh, of Daniel 3, right? The golden image. Daniel 6, the Daniel in the lion's den. And so what do you have? You have a, a direct correlation that unless they worshipped, and then Daniel 3, of course, was the image, and Daniel 6, uh, of course, uh, Daniel couldn't uh, pray. Remember, the prayer was cut off. He was not allowed to pray, but Daniel says, no, I'm still going to pray. You see, by the way, that's a classic example of what I was talking about this morning. Government has no right to tell us how to worship. That's Look, I'm not opposed to certain uh, measures being taken regarding certain particular uh, aspects of how we should conduct ourselves in public in, in that regard. Although I may have an opinion about them, but the point is when the church is, in, in, uh, in, um, is uh, imposed upon by the state, right? So when, when you find the state saying to you, this, this is how you're going to now worship God. We should have put our foot down as a church and said, no. Even if they were correct, let's, let's work off our premise. Let's assume for the sake of the army, they were absolutely correct on how we should conduct ourselves. Let's just work off a premise. Let's assume they were right. They still have no uh, uh, correct about what they were saying in regard to They still have no right to tell us how to do it. Don't, it's not the issue of what they said, per se. It's the fact that they mandated it. Do you understand? So that's the crux of the issue. Somebody ran out of batteries. And um, there you go. So, I don't know, something happened. Yeah, why don't I just leave it off? Maybe that'll, what'd you, must have, did, was the wire loose or something? Yeah, well, no, it's okay now. All right, well, we'll just leave it there for, for now. And uh, there. All right. Um so you find that same principle in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Remember the government and, and, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were told, oh, yeah, oh no, you have to worship. This is how you're going to have to worship. And they said, no. I mean, they were respectful to the king, but they were firm and adamant. Not, it's the sorry king. You can kill us if you want, but we're not doing that. So you see what I'm, so you have a historical event, a civil issue, trans, uh, or interwoven within, uh, with religious implications in terms of the issues that are going on, and how we, living today, extract the lessons for us. So that's all I'm saying. You see, you can find that in the book of Daniel and in Revelation. Now, Revelation, of course, there are the same type of principles involved. For example, we talked about Revelation 13 today. And you look at that concept, you know, all the world wanders after the beast and worships the image of the beast and, is, and, and, and the beast and worship the dragon. Well, you go over to Revelation 13, 11, it tells you that the second beast power causes all the world to worship the first beast whose deadly wound is healed. That's in verse 12. He's going to make that word cause in the Greek actually means to make, compel, to force against your will. Somebody at the end of time is going to resist the encroaching uh, demands of the, church, of the state upon, upon the church. 
Somebody's going to say, no, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, like Daniel, like uh, Peter and John and others in the book of Acts who said, no, we ought to obey God rather than men. We're not going to do what you tell us regarding these issues because you're conflicting directly with the word of the Lord. It's not going to happen. He said, well, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, the odd man out in society. Get you, listen to me. You buy, we better get used to it. You better get used to it because we're going to be the odd people in this world. And it's, and what I'm trying to tell you is what's happening is everyone's being conditioned slowly. You understand? It's, it's a, it's not about unity. It's about uniformity. And there's a massive difference between those two issues. The, the world will never be united. Never, but it will have uniformity. In the church, we don't want uniformity, but we do want unity. Unity is built on truth. Uniformity is the artificial form of unity. You understand? It gives the appearance that you're all united. But in reality, you're not. And so, this last vision of Daniel is the one vision that has been a, a vision that's plagued a lot of people for uh, decades, generations, if not centuries, since it's been given. Because people have, throughout Christianity, been wondering, what is it talking about? Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, uh, when you look at those, and I speak now just in chapter 11, I'm going to exclude chapter 10 today and chapter 12. We don't have time. Having said that, if you look at the 45 verses of chapter 11, <clears throat> you notice uh, that for the, for the basic first, I'm speaking now throughout the history of Adventism, for the first 30 verses, 30, say 35 verses, there's really not been much of a contentious issue over uh, uh, how we interpret that. Oh, there's little variations, but it's never really been contentious. Now, when you get to verses 36 to 39, that's where things began to, 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 to split. You understand? Things began to change. For example, in the early stages of Adventism, men like uh, James White, Jay and Andrews, uh, even Uriah Smith all believed that the king of the north, and, and those, particularly those verses I just mentioned, 36 to 40, that era 39, all referred to the papacy. It wasn't until Uriah Smith in the 1870s changed his mind and said it applies to Turkey. And that's where you get, and now from that point forward, where, you know, there were Adventists who said, no, 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 King of the North is the papacy, and others said, no, no, it's Turkey. And, of course, as time went on, that issue, uh, as I said, solidified people, you know, fell into camps which is, I guess, understandable because you're going to eventually come to an understanding, at least in your idea, right, what you, based on your studies, well, this is, I think it goes this way. I believe it's this, or I believe it's that. So, uh, but, it, but then in the, uh, in, in somewhere in the, 
uh, the, the, the 50s and 60s, you know, things started to change a little. And then eventually by the time you get down to the 80s, uh, really things started to take a different, uh, a different scope in regard to the king of the north. Now I want to back up just a little bit to a guy by the name of Louis Weir, W-E-R-E, L-F Weir, Louis F. Weir. He was an Australian evangelist, um, a dynamic speaker. He wrote many books in the 1940s and 50s and 60s on the king of the north. And, um, and I'd recommend you get them. They're really good. He's got a lot of wonderful things. Having said that, uh, his, he, he came back and said, started defending James White and defending uh, Jay and Andrews, people like that. Because by the time you get down to the 1940s and 50s and 60s, Uriah Smith's view dominated the church. And then, you, as I say, you have men like Lewis Weir who, who questioned it and said, no, the king of the north cannot be Turkey. It has to be the papacy. And here's the reasons why. And he began to show as to why. Um, so now to bringing up today, I don't think really too many people in the Adventist church have an issue with that. Now it's come to the point where the king of the north is fundamentally understood to be the papacy. And so Uriah Smith's view has kind of fell by the wayside. Not to say there aren't those who still believe it, but it's not the dominant view anymore. The real bone of contention in Daniel 11 for Seventh-day Adventists today is verses 40 to 45. It's those six verses that this is, and, and, and there is no general consensus, there's a, at least on some aspects. In other, in other parts, yes, there's an understanding for example, he shall come to his end and none shall help him. That's a general agreement. Nobody really disputes the fact. That's the end. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ, the destruction of the Antichrist. That's clearly understood. You go to Isaiah and the, the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah where it prophesies of the destruction of Babylon. It's a direct quote from those pro- pro- prophets. Because John, John uh, Daniel didn't make up that phrase. He borrowed that. So... Nobody argues over that. Tidings out of the east and out of the north. There's really no dispute over that. That's the loud cry in the latter rain. Tidings out of the east. That's the seal of God comes out of the east. Who else comes out of the east? Jesus Christ. It says that lightning comes out of the east even unto the west. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So which direction does he come from? The east. In Revelation, he's also known as what? God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The kings of the east. So today, again, those issues, they're, they're not really, that's not a real bone contention. Nobody really kind of argues over those kind of things. So there are certain things within those six passages that are fundamentally set in concrete. But the real problem is who's the king of the south? That's the issue. Because who is this power? And everybody's got a view. I mean, that, there is no consensus. Some say it's Islam. Some say it represents one country, another. There's Russia, China, this or that. It, it goes all the gamut. It just it runs the gamut. It really does. Now, listen very carefully. I have an opinion, and I'm going to share it with you, and I believe to be based on the evidence contained in this prophecy, and I'll share it with you in a second. But what I'm trying to say is that there has, there is no general consensus. 
So the best you can do is then research, hopefully, obviously, with an honest heart, and try to ask God for guidance to say, Lord, lead me along the way. Now, a number of years ago, uh, having studied this, I've been studying Daniel 11, let's see, probably for 37 years. And uh, not that, that that means anything per se, but it means I spent a little time in it. Uh, um, as I say, it doesn't mean I know everything. It just simply means I've, I've, I've made it an issue to make sure I, 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 I focus on that. Because the reason is this. This is Daniel's last vision. And what's interesting when you study Daniel 2 in relation to Daniel 7 and then 8 and 9 and 10 through 12, every time the vision prece- or, or, or follows Daniel 2, every time one follows the other, there's always an enlargement, a further understanding on the vital issues that God is bringing to your attention. So here we are at the last vision. This has got to be the most important of them all, only because it's the last thing God wants to talk to us about in relation to the book of Daniel and God's people in these last days. So there's something vital here question is, what is it? What is God trying to say to us? Now, I told you about civil issues and how they, the reason they're brought out in scriptures because God's drawing your attention to some spiritual issue that's coming into play. Okay, remember, God doesn't just talk about nations void of any relation to the church. He doesn't do that. He always mentions um, nations a, a people like the Cushites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, or whatever, only because it has a direct correlation to the people of God in some form of fashion. So in other words, all these things are indicators, draw, drawing your attention to the real issue that the prophet wants to address. You need to be aware of that. Now, if you don't know what's going on in regard to the civil issues, then you can't see the spiritual one that the prophet's trying to address. In other words, you don't see where it ties in. What's the importance? I don't see the significance. For example, Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, chapter 3, the great image, the golden image, right, that was set up. If you don't understand the civil concepts that were being brought out at that point in time, in, in the time of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, and, and how, it had a, uh, how that, those civil issues had a direct impact upon religious freedom, the fourth commandment, then I, you, you're never going to learn what the, the, the lesson's about. You're never going to extract it and see how that Daniel 3, as well as Daniel 6, as I mentioned, has a direct parallel to Revelation 13. So if you really want to know what's going to happen in Revelation 13 in terms of a broader detail, study the details of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Because he's laying out principles of what's going to repeat itself again in Revelation chapter 13. There are lessons to be learned, but you have to know what's going on in the civil issues at the day. So Daniel's last vision is the critical one. So let's begin here, and we're going to go through an outline um, of of this vision and I'm going to share it with you. Let me read a statement to you from the pen of inspiration. This is coming from letter 103, uh, 1904. Sister White says, we have no time to lose. 
Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy of the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. In the 30th verse of power spoken of, and then she quotes Daniel 11, 30 to 36. By the way, this is proof that Uriah Smith, uh, in his book, Daniel and Revelation, the book Daniel and Revelation that he wrote when he comes to Daniel 11 and he talks about Turkey, he's wrong. Because Sister White says, notice a power, a power is spoken of in verses 30 to 36. Now, Uriah Smith has no problem with the papacy in verse 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, and 35. But verse 36 is where he makes a break and says a new power has arisen, the king of the north, Turkey. The problem is this. Sister White included verse 36 with verses uh, verses 30 to 35 and said it's not two powers, but it's only one power. And everybody knows that verse 36 goes with verse 37, 38, and 39, and 40 regarding the king of the north. So if you have the same power, verses 30 to 36, then 37 to 40 is the same power. You can't have two different powers. So what I'm telling you is that the servant of the Lord is correcting the mistake that Uriah Smith made. He's not correct on that issue. Then she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. And by the way, it's interesting why she didn't keep on quoting, because if you study those verses out carefully, 30 to 36, she's talking, it's talking about the Inquisition. Scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. What is she saying? What is Daniel the prophet telling you? He's telling you there's not only an, was there an Inquisition Uh, Well, of course, in his day, he was prophesying of it. But now we're looking back and we're saying, well, that's come to pass under the description of the Inquisition. So in essence, what is the prophet telling you? Here it comes again. It's going to be repeated. And Revelation chapter 13 tells you that. It tells you that no man can buy or sell except he who had the what? The mark of the beast. And by the way, again, now you think about that. You can't buy or sell unless you comply with the mandates of the state. Now, again, I want you to listen to what's happening. I don't care. You want to wear a mask? You don't have to wear a mask. If you want to, you can. God bless you. Do whatever you want. That's between you and God. Okay, I'm not here to impose that. Here's what I am telling you, though. What's happening, unbeknownst to us, is there already it's working. Already it's happening. You can't come into the store unless you wear a mask. Now, that doesn't mean I don't wear them. I'm just telling you, I want you to see the mindset. I want you to see where Satan is trying to take us. You can't go to a grocery, a certain grocery store unless you wear a mask. In other words, you can't buy or sell. You follow what I'm saying? You see the principle? You can, no, not unless you comply. Now, you see, in order for, look, in order for Satan to get us to keep Sunday, he can't just automatically come at, at us directly. He's got to lead you along the way, step by step, step by step. As long as you're conscious and aware of the issues, 
That's what I want you to be aware of. I'm not saying don't wear it. I'm just saying be aware of where it's going to take us. Don't be naive, friend. If you think this is over, this is all going to you know, come to an end. There, I told you, they already set precedence. It's already set. They're going to do it again. We know it from Scripture. Now, will there be a, like a debit card issued to everybody? Will it be a, a, a you know, cashless society? I don't know. And we don't know those kind of things. Don't speculate, right? It's not important, is it? Not really. Not important. Uh, it, somehow, some way, they're going to have to monitor who's, who's obeying and who isn't obeying. Now, how that's happening, I don't know. But somehow, some way, it's got to be monitored. You know, in ancient Rome, in Nero's day, actually even, even uh, beyond his day, the way they settled out who was a Christian and who wasn't a Christian is they would come uh, and line everybody up and they'd have a, uh, a, a big bowl, like on fire, it was a fire, like a, like a big fire pit and on a brass bronze bowl <clears throat> and you'd come up and right in front of it would be a, a, a little bit of incense and if you weren't a pagan you take it and you throw it into the fire so they'd know okay he's with us he's, he's coming along in the empire and they just let him go but you see the Christian can't do that because the Christian knew that would be worship to a pagan god and what is the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me so they'd be breaking God's law, wouldn't they? And they would not they wouldn't do it. So they'd walk up to that, that brazen thing that's on fire, this big old fire pit, and because it was a form it's a form of worship. And they said, God, just bring the spring, just grab a touch and just sprinkle it into the fire. And they say, No. And they say, Okay, we now know you're a Christian. They put him aside, and that's when they fed him to the lions. Somehow, some way, they're going to regulate who's who. All I'm telling you is now is the, is, is the foundations being laid. You see? It's a stepping stone. Just wake up. That's all I'm saying is don't be naive. Look, you don't really believe the government's concerned for your health, do you? Do you really believe? Because if you do, I'm, I'm listen, no disrespect to anybody, but you are naive as they come. The government doesn't care for your health because if they did, they wouldn't tax you to death. They wouldn't treat us the way they do. Why is health insurance through the roof? Why do I prescriptions? I go to just a little bottle of prescription. Oh, that's five thousand, three thousand, two thousand. People got paid thousands and thousands of dollars for prescriptions. If they're so concerned for your health, why don't they reduce down the, the health care costs? They don't care. Look, Caesar has never cared for its people. Caesar is a tyrant. It doesn't have any compassion. God has compassion. Caesar never has compassion. It's a taskmaster. So this idea, this is a pretext. Don't you know what this is all about? You think it just happened to be on an election year? It just happened to come about? There's a purpose why they let it happen. Because it's all about making sure Trump doesn't get reelected. 
That's what it's all about. All you got to do is, it, it's a matter of fact, you should hear what some of the Democratic politicians are saying. Now, they don't broadcast this on the news because they don't want the public to know, but it's on YouTube and it's on um, Facebook, it's on Twitter. You can go and hear their own speeches. And they're blatantly saying it. There's a reason it's all been planned in advance. This didn't accidentally happen. You surely, you, 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 uh, if you think the entire world shut down accidentally, it just happened to be that way, you are living in la-la land. Because this was all planned long ago. It was planned. Friends, all I'm telling you is this. You know, if you study Revelation carefully, you know it says that the leaders of the land, for the most part, not all of them, but generally speaking, the leaders of the land talks about the generals, the kings, and the princes, and so forth. They're under the control of who? According to Revelation, I'm not saying, I'm just telling what the Bible says. They're under control of who? Satan. I didn't say that. The scripture says that. Where do you, do you think, you think that they, they are making these things up as they go along? Satan is planning it through them. I'm telling you that he's got something in mind that even they don't know about. He's using them. Do you think Satan loves, lo- loves uh, the, the wicked? you think he loves the demons who, f- who fell? No. He's happy that they're all going to be destroyed. He loves it because he has no love. Every shred of, of, of virtue, every, every shred of, of uh, the attribute of God in the, when he was originally created by God, all of that's gone now. He's completely... Uh, void of any virtue, compassion, love, or mercy. He has none. He doesn't even love himself. But he's using these people to achieve his objective. All I'm trying to tell you is, dear friends, you are, we, well, we are living through an incredible time. An incredible time. And I'm going to show you, I really believe, we're watching the end of those verses that I mentioned, verses 40 to 45. We're watching them take place right now. And I'm going to show it to you. So she says, we see that the evidence that Satan is fast obtaining control of human minds. Notice, he's, what is he doing? Controlling human minds who have not the fear of God before them. Let all read and understand the prophecies of this book, for we are now entering in the, upon the time of trouble spoken of. And then, of course, she quotes Daniel 12, 1-4. So you can see just from that one statement alone how strong it really is in regard to the importance of that, of that uh, vision. So let's go on and look now. Let's look at the chronology. What we're going to do now, listen very carefully. There's no way I can take you through this, through this uh, uh, vision. I mean, in detail. Can't do it. Believe me, I could stay here for a week and we would, we, we would exhaust a good bit, but we still wouldn't even cover um, some very key points. Okay? 
And then there's a ringing. Am I hearing it or is it me? Am I hearing it? Some kind of a ring? You think? Maybe. Is that it? How's that? Is that better? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. I didn't realize that. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> I was going to say something, but now I <laughs> lost my train of thought. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, what I'm going to do is do an overview of the, of the book, okay? But we're going to break it down into, into issues. One is we're going to deal with the chronology of the book of, of the last vision of Daniel, okay? So, <clears throat> this is an outline of way of chronologically looking at the vision, okay? And why is that important? Because listen, if you want to know the details of what's going to take place at the end of the chapter, it's critical that you begin to understand the importance of the previous aspects in the vision. Nothing in Scripture is insignificant. I'm Repeat that. Nothing in Scripture is insignificant. Everything has a divine purpose. Everything. Every person mentioned in the Bible, every tribe, every nation, every kingdom, every group, every uh, pagan idol. There's a reason why pagan idols are mentioned. It's not for us to worship them. It's because God is saying, there's a reason I'm mentioning, say, Baal. There's a reason I'm mentioning Baal and the prophets of Baal. I don't want you to worship that image. And you say, well, God, we don't, there's, Baal's not around today. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yeah, of course he's here. Baal worship's been around for thousands of years. You think all of a sudden it's gone? It may well be that we don't worship Baal the way the pagans three, 4,000 years ago did. But Baal and Baal worship is still here. It's pagan worship. It's sun worship. Hasn't changed. The, the way you sell the product has changed. But the product is still the same. And that's why. So, <clears throat> by breaking it down this way, you are able then to grasp the importance of what's being said. So let's look at it. In verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? The Medo-Persian Empire from 538 to 331 B.C. In verse 3 to 14a, that means the first section of verse 14, he's talking about the Grecian Empire from 331 to 168 B.C. From verses 14b to 30, and really that should be 30a, uh, it's the Roman Empire from 168 B.C. all the way to A.D. Uh, 4. 76. Now, of course, that's referring to the fall of Western Rome. Not the eastern part of the Roman Empire, but the western part of the Roman Empire. Okay, verses 31 to 40 is the Papal Empire, the first phase. That's describing the 1260-year period from 538 to 1798. So that is very important. Now you come to verse 40, and that's the, and to 45, that's the second phase of the Papal Empire, and that is uh, from 1798, taking you all the way down to the last days of Earth's history. You can close a probation, second coming of Jesus, however you want to frame it, that's fine. So that's the chronological spanning of the 11th chapter. So we see where we are. So according to this, just based on the chronology, without even going any further interpretation, we already now know we're sometime 
somewhere in verses 40 to 45. That, that we know for a fact. That's not a rumor. That's a fact. Dear friends, we only have a few more verses until Jesus comes. And what I'm going to show you is we, we have less than that. I mean, we are that close. So, let's look on. Now I want to talk, I'm going to look at the 11th from the point of transitions. Not chronology per se, but transitions. Going from one power to another power. Okay, so we're transitioning. When you look at, for example, Daniel 2, okay, I'm just because it's easy to understand. You have the head of gold. When he's mentioning the head of gold, is your focus to be upon the legs of iron? Is that where your focus should be? He's no, he's telling when he says the head is gold, right? And he's focusing on the head of gold. Does he want you to focus on the legs of iron? No. There's a reason why he's mentioning the head, because he's isolating it from everything else. So in other words, the importance is, at the time when those powers are mentioned, is to focus on those powers. Understand the significance of what it is that God is trying to convey relative to the church. What are the issues that I need to be aware of? And then when you learn that, then you go to the breast of arms and silver. And then you go to the belly and thighs of brass and then the legs of iron and then the, the toes and feet of iron and clay. So in other words, there's transitions. It's not just chronological order of events. It's also transitioning from one power to another power and issues that are relative to God's people at that point in time. And then we as God's people in the last days do what? We extract the principles from those historical events in order that we may better be prepared for what is coming. History keeps repeating itself. Why do you think Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun? Well, why isn't there anything new under the sun? Because history keeps repeating itself. What is it? Ecclesiastes 3.15, that which hath been is now, that which is to be hath already been, and God requires that which is past. Now, this is a very important principle. That which hath been, that's past tense, is now, that which is to be, future tense, hath already been. How can something in the past be present and something in the future be in the past? That doesn't make any sense. Like, what, what, what's that mean? And then he closes by saying God requires that which is past. In other words, what is it that God is trying to help us to understand? He's saying, look, if you want to know what happened in the past and how it's relevant for today and what will be in the future that has already taken place in the past, he says, study your history. Why? History keeps repeating itself. Well, what in history keeps repeating itself? Think about that. Let me ask you something. What in history keeps repeating itself? And why does history keep repeating itself? Those two questions you need to be asking yourself. What in history repeats itself? And why does history repeat itself? Well, let's talk about why. Why does history keep repeating itself? I want to talk to you about human nature. I, I referred to this earlier before my previous message. The human nature of mankind does not change with the passage of time. You, you don't think our nature is any better than the previous generations, do you? If anything, our natures are worse because we've accumulated 6,000 years of sin in terms of an experience. You've got to realize we're, we're not just sinners, we're good sinners. I mean, we know how to sin real good. You see, we've got 6,000 years behind us. Your parents were sinners. 
Your grandparents were sinners. Your great-grandparents were sinners. Their, their parents were sinners. And you keep going down the line. All that was inherited in you. you, want to, you, you we got 6,000 years of inherited experience of sin. Okay? Now think. Now look. So why does history keep repeating itself is because human nature doesn't change. Daniel chapter 3. I should have mentioned it. And even Daniel 6, you can use both. The principles are exactly the same. Two different periods of time, right? Not the same event. Two different events at two different periods of time. Though not that far spanned in time, I will agree with you. But two different events. But the same issue was repeated. Differently, but was still the same. Revelation 13, the same principle that is repeated in Daniel 6, that was found in Daniel 3, is repeated in Revelation 13. Different time, thousands of years spanning of difference of time, but different human beings. But why did it repeat itself? Because human nature is the same. When put in the sort of set of circumstances, when human nature unaided by the Spirit of God, is placed in a set of circumstances, human nature will tend to act a certain way. You understand? It's, it's, it's social behavior. You know that they, the intelligent communities, do you know they study this stuff? Human behavior? How human beings will react under a certain set of circumstances? Let me explain When there are a certain set of circumstances, whether real or imaginary, human nature tends to behave a certain way. Whether they're good or evil, there is a tendency to behave a certain way. Satan knows that. He's been studying human nature from the day when when he first heard the conversation that God invited Jesus in to create man. Because that was where the controversy all began. He said, why wasn't I invited? Remember? Haven't you, don't you remember reading early writings? Don't you remember what the conversation was in heaven? Lucifer was upset because Jesus Christ was allowed into the inner council of God over the creation of man. He wanted to know why he wasn't invited. Now, why wasn't Lucifer invited? He's not God. Lucifer forgot who he was in relation to Jesus Christ. Why didn't Jesus come out and say, I'm God? Why didn't he just come out and blast it? Listen, dear friends, and for all intents and purposes, Jesus was already revealing he was God and always had been. He was doing what he was, uh, was, was supposed to do. Remember, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are exactly the same in nature. They're exactly the same in nature. You don't have three different kinds of divine nature. You only have one divine nature, and they all possess the same nature. Their function and purpose is different. So, divinity, the same. That's why it says there's only one God, the Lord God. There's only one, meaning one in nature. Not one person, but three persons who occupy one nature. And this is one God. So, each of them has their function and role. So, Jesus was was revealing... Uh, uh, the, the divine glory of the Father. 
And Satan was upset because he wasn't involved in the creation of man. And so mankind has been a, a, a subject of, of study for Satan since the creation. Since he first saw mankind, he'd been studied out. Now, we don't know how long it took from the time when God made Adam and Eve and the time when Eve sinned. We'd have no idea. We're not told. We don't know. No one knows. Anybody tells you that, they're not telling the truth. All right? Listen, we don't know how long. Suffice it to say, I, will, I do believe this. Satan was taking his time to figure these, because we've got to remember, Sister White says, and the Bible makes it very clear as far as I'm concerned, that mankind was the crowning act of creation. And I don't mean just the crowning act of the creation of, of, the, of this earth. I'm talking the universe. No, no beings in the universe are created in the image of God except us. Did you know that? We're the only ones in the actual physical form of God Almighty. So we know the form of God. He has a head and neck. He has shoulders. He has hands, arms, legs, body. We, that's a fact. That's not a rumor. That's a fact. But we're the only ones. And we are the crowning act of creation. We were the last thing God ever made. You think about that for a moment. Long ago. Listen. Satan's studying human behavior. He knows exactly how humans behave. So what does he do? You think the uh, issue of the, uh, we know it was a, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and the fruit that he plucked, or he, right, and he, or he, he, and he handed it to her. He put it in her hand. Listen to me. We know it was an apple, at least of silver and gold. That we do know. Now, not an apple we ever had. That I can tell you. Having said that, he brought about circumstances in such a way where he then did what? Tempted her on the issue of appetite. Now I'm going to ask you something. Has he ever repeated the circumstances of that event? Multiple, multiple times. How about the antediluvian world? They were annihilated for the fundamental reason is because they perverted their appetite, which led to the perversion of their spiritual life. How about Jesus Christ in the wilderness? What was the first temptation? First temptation when he fasted what? on the issue of appetite. Why do you think in Revelation 13, 17 says no man can buy or sell? What's he attacking us on? The issue of appetite. History keeps repeating itself. When human nature is placed under the same circumstances, there's a natural tendency of a human nature to behave a certain way. Okay? So don't be naive. So we're looking at transitions, and we're looking at showing you how things go from one to the next. Okay? Let's look at this. In verses, there are two sections. If you take the last, Daniel 11, and you, verses 45, or 45 verses, you can divide it almost in half. The first 22 verses brings us to the time of the first coming of Jesus. Verses 23 to 45, all the way down to 45, takes you up to the second coming of Jesus. So here you have now a real big transition, right? You're going from one very important issue, verses 22, that's the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then verse 45, we notice the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
So it's not just in terms of chronology, but a massive transition between the first and the second coming. Okay? Let's keep going. In verses 1 to 4. Now, this is a more detailed breakdown. And instead of looking at a larger scale of the chronology, we're going to look at, let's say, strictly on transitioning. All right, so watch. In verses 1 to 4, you have Medo-Persia and Greece, and then the four kingdoms. Okay? So what do we have here? We have political powers in a secular conflict involving literal Israel or the, or the Jewish church. Okay? Because remember, the Gentile church doesn't exist. It's not around chronologically or, or, or in terms of time frame at that point. So they're not relevant to the issue. Only the Jewish church is. In verses 5 to 15, the king of the north, which is the Seleucid kingdom, and the king of the south, which is the kingdom of Ptolemy. He says, these, now again, what is this talking about? This is political powers in a secular conflict involving literal Israel. Now, why is this all important? <clears throat> because what you're seeing is not... Uh, uh, um, you're seeing a transition from powers, Medo-Persia, Greece, then going from Greece to pagan to papal Rome, etc., etc. You're seeing transitions occurring. Why is this important? Because what is the issue when the, you have these transitions? What's taking place in the 11th chapter? The same issues that existed fundamentally before in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9. You have world powers or powers struggling for world domination. This is very important. You have powers struggling who's going to rule the world. When Babylon rose up, it conquered and absorbed the Assyrians and every other kingdom in its way. It was the undisputed ruler of the world. But eventually, who would come and conquer the Babylonians? The Medes and the Persians. And they then ruled the then known world. Then who came after them and conquered them? The kingdom of Greece. And they then ruled the world. And then who came after them? Rome under the Caesars. And they then ruled the world. Now, after the pagan Roman Empire, after the pagan Roman Empire, what do you find, what do you find uh, regarding the issues? In other words, is the quest for world domination, uh, see, uh, does it cease to exist in its relevance? No. No. It just transitions from one power to the next. That's what you're getting here. Now, the king of the north, the king of the south, from verse 5 onward, is the great contentious issue. In the early verses, it's the Seleucid kingdom, and then it's the kingdom of Ptolemy. The kingdom of Ptolemy is the kingdom of, of Egypt. And the Seleucid kingdom uh, transitions. Now, the kingdom of the south will always maintain, at least in name, Egypt. But not necessarily in identity as to who occupies that kingdom. For example, it may go from Seleucid, then it, later on eventually you find Cleopatra. She was the queen of Egypt. Remember? Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, Mark Antony, right? If, I mean, I'm sure you're at least a little familiar with them. The point is that you see a transition. The kingdom of the north is the Seleucid kingdom, okay? And that occupied a certain region, a territory. And that went on from Seleucus onto his descendants, and it kept transitioning from that one person to the next until Rome came. 
And pagan Rome conquered the territory of the, of the Seleucii kingdom. Now, that does not change the king of the north in terms of the name. It stays the same, the king of the north. But you have a transition of identity from the Seleucii kingdom to pagan Rome. It's still the king of the north. You all with me? You got to see. This is critical. Then what happens when the, when, the, when the pagan Rome fell? Who occupied the seat of Rome? Revelation 3, 13, 3. The dragon gave his power, seat, and great authority. Pagan Rome went to papal Rome. All right, now look. It's still the king of the north. You all with me? The names do not change in terms of the king of the north, the king of the south. But who occupies them, that's what changes. You're having transitions. Okay? So let's go on. Verses 16 to 22, the king of the north now becomes pagan Rome. Why? Because it absorbed the Seleucid kingdom. And therefore, because it occupies the territory of the previous king of the north, it now becomes the king of the north. All you're doing is swapping out. Okay? You understand what I mean? We're just swapping out. You're, you're, you're the driver one day, right? You're driving the bus. You're the driver. So we swap you out for another driver. The bus is still the same. It's just a different driver. You all with me? The king in the north is still the same. It's just a different driver. Now we're at the, we're at the pagan Rome. All right? So a transition has just occurred. So the king of the south is Egypt. Okay? Still part of the Ptolemy kingdom, but it's Egypt. And then it's political powers in a secular conflict involving literal Israel. Let me read a note to you. That notes this. It says, verse 22 marks the time of Christ's crucifixion. There are two important events that take place. Number one, the Jews reject Jesus, resulting in the transference of the covenant. And number two is that Satan loses his kingdom. Now, let's talk about the first one. When the Jews rejected Jesus, now this happens to be in verse 22 because a transition is going to occur. In verse 22, Christ is crucified. The Jews reject Jesus. What does that do? It causes the transference of the covenant from literal Israel to the Christian church. And we then, therefore, through faith, become what? Spiritual Israel. Paul talks about that in Galatians and Romans. We are spiritual Jews now. So what happens to all the prophecies... What happens to all the prophecies that God gave to Abraham and his descendants regarding the covenant that weren't yet fulfilled, and even partially were fulfilled, but still have to be fulfilled at the end of time? What happens? They're now fulfilled in the Christian church. Why do you think people don't understand the book of Revelation today with evangelical Christianity? Because they deny the transferring of the covenants. Seventh-day Adventists don't deny it. We recognize it. Because the book of Deuteronomy says more than 50 times, they use the two-letter word, if. God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. The covenant is conditional. When God made the covenant with Abraham, listen to me. He said, if you do this, I will do this for you. Right? If you obey me, Abraham, I will bless you. I will bless you, Abraham. But you have to obey me. The Ten Commandments are not the basis of the covenant. They're the conditions of the covenant. You understand? It's a big difference. People say, oh, you're a legalist. You Adventist. You're part of that old covenant-keeping law of God. We say, no, 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 no. The Ten Commandments are the conditions to the covenant. It's not the basis of the covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ is the basis of the covenant. 
So there's a transition now. All right. So literal local becomes spiritual worldwide in this application, right? Instead of literal Israel, it's spiritual Israel. Instead of local in the land of Palestine, it's what? Geographically, it's global. Right? It's global now. So we don't see a church or a group or or a a spiritual nation located in one place, do we? Where's God's church? It's all over the world. What kind of people are they? Black people, white people, you know, red, yellow, brown, right? All different colors, right? And from different backgrounds, men and women, right? Anyone who professes Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, if you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you immediately move into the new covenant. You're part of the the spiritual Israel now. So that's what he's talking about. Now, let's talk about Satan losing his kingdom in verse 22. What happened in verse 22? Satan forfeited or or, uh, lost his kingdom. Now, remember, prior to this, he claimed that he was Lord of this world. But when Jesus came and died on the cross and said, it is finished, what did Jesus Christ do? He took the kingdom away from Satan that Satan stole from Adam. Because remember, how did Adam sin? He he sinned through deception. Remember, Eve misled him. uh, Or or beguiled him, I should say. And and, and led him astray. So he wasn't uh, deceived in that sense. But... um, but you see that that uh, that uh, yeah, because Eve was deceived into in being dis, uh, in in le- being led to sin. But so what, Satan lost his kingdom. Now, why is this important? From this point forward in the prophecy, Satan is going to attempt by using world kingdoms to regain his power on this earth. In other words, dear friends, the whole issue in Daniel eleven is about who's going to rule this world. Not just between God and Satan, but in terms of worldly powers. Who's going to rule this world? Who's going to rule this world? That's the issue in Daniel 11. Who is going to rule the world? Not just in regard to Satan and Christ, but in terms of political powers. That's the point between the king of the north and the king of the south. We have two Nations, countries, kingdoms, listen to me. At the end of time, struggling for world domination. Who's going to rule the world? That's the whole point of the vision. Verses 23 to 30, the king of the north, pagan Rome, versus the king of the south, Egypt, political powers, and a secular conflict involving God's people, both Israel, because there's a transition of time period. First it starts off with Israel, and then it ends where? With the Christian church. So you see the church at large. Now it's coming down towards us. The transition is now taking place. Let me read to you this. Listen to this statement. This is taken from Haskell, Stephen Haskell's book, the, 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 uh, I think the seer of Patmos or the Daniel the prophet. I forgot, but I'll give it to you. In Paul's day, that is in the first century after Christ, the mystery of iniquity was at work. Until now, meaning verses up to verse 30 of Daniel 11, The history, as recorded in the book of Daniel, dealt with earthly kingdoms. But from this time on, meaning from 30 to 45, history handles this mystery of iniquity, which worked, now notice, through various governments. Now, this is critical. The papacy is going to work through what? 
governments, earthly civil powers to do what? To accomplish its power, its desire. And what's the papacy want? I just read it to you at Revelation 13. To rule the world. All the world wandered after the beast. And who's behind the beast? Verse 4, Satan. That's why it says they worshiped Satan, the dragon. So, notice uh, Haskell is absolutely correct. The papacy is not going to work through various governments. The distinction between the various kingdoms of the north and the south remains as it was in the past, right? That does not change. But we pass from governments as governments to a power which is swaying these governments. Now what he's trying to show you is now someone's behind them. Moving the strings of these civil powers. He's saying on the one side of the controversy is the church of God. On the other is the mystery of iniquity which often lays hold of earthly governments for the purpose of destroying the church. And man, is that a powerful statement. Because what you're seeing in the latter verses of Daniel 11 is that principle being carried out. Satan is going to be using these earthly kingdoms along with the papacy to achieve its objective, and that is to rule the world, to regain the power of the earth. Okay? What you are witnessing, dear friends, what you are witnessing is a transition of power taking place. A transition of power taking place. And you've got to keep that in mind. You've got to keep that in mind. All right? Let's, I'm going to skip this one. I don't have time. Let's keep going. Verses 31 to 40. The king of the north. Now, at this point, a trans, does, the, does the title king of the north change? Remember, no, that does not change. A transition of who occupies the seat does. In this case, now where are we? We're now at the papacy. Versus God's church, spiritual Israel. The papacy, with the aid of political powers, and this, of course, describing, remember, this is 31 to 40. What's the, what period? The Dark Ages. So during the Dark Ages, who did the papacy seek aid from? Spain. You ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? How, how about France? The, the French Huguenots were slaughtered. How about Italy, the, the Italian Inquisition? And then, et cetera, England. It, it just, it, it, England was used for a period of time under Rome. Remember Queen Mary, Bloody Mary? She butchered and slaughtered the Protestants and so forth. So you have all that. So notice the papacy is using earthly kingdoms to achieve its objective. Uh, it says our spiritual, in a spiritual conflict with God's church. This period covers the 1260, verses 40 to 45. Now, the king of the north is the papacy. It's still the papacy. But now listen to me. What is the papacy going to use to achieve its objective? It's going to seek aid from who? Earthly kingdoms. Who is it going to seek the aid of in order to achieve its objective of world domination? What did Revelation 13 tell you? There are only two powers mentioned in Scripture in Revelation 13. First is the papacy. Who's the second beast? The United States of America. It says he's what caused all the world to wonder after the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. It says he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. America makes an image to the beast. So who is the papacy going to use in the last days to achieve its objective? Who? The United States of America. So by the time you get down to verse 40 to 45, you can read it this way. You can read the, pap- the king of the north, the papacy slash the USA alliance. So when you're starting to read verses 40 to 45, and it's talking about the king of the north, you've got to keep in mind, it's not just talking about the papacy. It's talking about the powers that it's using to achieve its objective, primarily the United States of America. 
America is going to be a world-dominating power. Scripture tells us that. America is not going to play second fiddle to anybody on the face of the earth. How can it if America leads out and all the world wonders after the beast because America is the one leading out? Listen, you've got to understand the implications of what that means. America will be the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Economically, politically, militarily, it's going to be a juggernaut. But the king of the south, who's that? Who will America, along with the papacy aided, who will America go against at the end of time for world domination? That means, look, in verse 40, the king of the south in the early part of verse 40 is France, right? At the time of the end, shall the king of the south push against him? At the time of the end is 1798. Who in 1798 came against the papacy? Friends, France, the deadly wound, Revelation 13.3, Revelation 13.10 talks about the deadly wound. Who inflicted the deadly wound? It was Berthier, it was under Napoleon. Remember, dear friends, it was Napoleon under the French Revolution. It was Napoleon under Berthier who marched in the city of Rome on February the 10th. And five days later, on February the 15th, took Pope Pius VI off the throne. And what happened? He dissolved the papal government, proclaimed the Roman Republic, thus ending papal supremacy, which began in 538 under Justinian. Papal supremacy came to an end. Now, the papacy didn't come to an end. Papal supremacy came to an end. But what does the Bible say? The deadly wound was healed, and then all the world wandered after the beast, meaning the deadly wound that was afflicted in 1798 will eventually be healed. And when America forms an image to the beast, the deadly wound will be completely healed. And then all the world wanders after the beast. The image of the beast is a unification of church and state. Listen very carefully to the language. The image of the beast is the unification of church and state. The mark of the beast is Sunday observance. And in order for the, the, the Sunday law to be enacted, you must first have a unification of church and state. In other words, the image of the beast is a prelude to the, to the mark of the beast. So it's telling you characteristics of the United States at the end of time. America is going to be a world-dominating power. Now, here's the thing. Who's going to rule the world? According to prophecy, it's either the king of the north or the king of the south. Only one of them can rule the world. That's what they're fighting for. Both powers are fighting for the same thing that you read through the book of Daniel, the Daniel 11, the last. There are all these powers. They were fighting for world domination. Who's going to rule? First it was the Medes and the Persians. Then here came Greece. Alexander the Great came up. But right at the height of his power, what happened? He died at the age of 32. His kingdom was supposed to go to his sons, but his sons were just little boys. So it was t- they, were, they put in a temporary caretaker in charge of the kingdom. But the problem was Cassandra, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, they wanted that kingdom. And so they took the kingdom, and they didn't give it to the sons. They killed them. And then they took up the kingdom. Cassandra, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. What happened was Seleucus and Ptolemy, they became the dominant ones and conquered the Cassandra and Lysimachus. Now you have only two cow- powers left. Ptolemy became the king of the south. Seleucus became the king of the north. And from that point forward, you have the story of the king of the north, the king of the south, fighting for world domination. Who's going to rule the world? Now, why is it important in verse 40 when it talks about the king of the south and it references here, talking about France, the French Revolution. And remember, 
What's another name for the king of the south? Egypt. Now, why is this important? What does Egypt represent in Bible prophecy? What does Revelation 11 tell you? Atheism. Thank you very much, sir. Atheism. And what is Revelation 11 talking about? The French Revolution. Now you see the correlation between it. It's all coming together. Listen to me. Whoever the king of the south is, listen to me, whoever the king of the south is, is a very powerful nation. A very powerful nation. Go with me now, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you identifying marks. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Look at verse 40. Daniel 11, 40. We're going to look at it. Identifying marks to the king of the south. Because, see, we already know who the king of the north is. It's the papacy via who? The United States. They're, they're teaming up. There's an alliance between these two. All right? But we don't know who the king of the south is. So who's the king of the south? We already know the king of the north is. So look at this now. Verse 40. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push against him. This is talking about the deadly wound. 1798, France and the captivity of the papacy. Then it says the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. What does that imply? A revitalization of the king of the of north. He's coming back. In other words, the deadly wound is being healed. Now what she goes on to say. Now watch. He shall come against him like a whirlwind with, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. These are phrases or identifying marks to military power. Notice that the papacy is coming with military strength. But the papacy has no military. So that means there has to be an alliance formed by the papacy with a nation that is a military juggernaut. Who's that? The United States. Thank you very much. Well, why would you need a military power? Think about think, think. Why would the papacy need a, a, a nation that is a military juggernaut? Because remember, he's coming up against who? The king of the south. What would that imply? That the king of the south is a military juggernaut. Friends, let me tell you if you're an intruder coming in my house, and let's just say I know in advance you don't have any weapons, and you're not a real threat, I don't really need a gun, do I? I mean, I could use a knife I could, if I knew martial arts, some way to defend myself. All right, listen, here's the point. But if I knew you had a gun, you were coming in for danger. I need at least something equal to or greater than what he has. Implication, that's the point. He's implying. That if the papacy is going to link up with a military power, it implies the king of the south is a military power. But in order to build a military power, what kind of an economy must you have? A weak economy? You can't, you can't build up a strong nation. Now, you can build up temporarily a strong military, but eventually the, the bank's going to break because you don't have enough economic wherewithal to continue. Because if there's two contending powers, and right now there are, the king of the north and the king of the south are two military powers, powerful nations. But you need an economy that's strong enough to withstand anything the king of the north can bring up. So to hear the king of the north says, oh, you're going to build five nuclear warheads? I'm going to build 50. Then that means you economically have to come back and say, okay, I'm going I'm to build at least, at least 50. So you got to go toe-to-toe. Let me show you something. Look with me here in verse 43. Talking about the king of the north. 
The latter part of 42 says the king of Egypt shall not escape, or the land of Egypt. Who's Who's Egypt? The king of the south. What does Egypt represent in Bible prophecy? Atheism, socialism, communism. That means the king of the south is not only a military juggernaut, it's what? It's a socialist country. It's a communist country. Well, I can tell you this, it can't be Cuba. Right? They got no military. Believe me, the only thing they're going to hit you with is coconuts because that's all they've got. They are never going to win. Listen to me. Can't be Russia. Russia's no, did you know Russia's no longer a communist country? Did you know Putin declared it to be a Christian nation? Did you all know that? Were you aware of that? Yes. A couple of years ago, before Trump was ever elected the president, several years ago, Putin came out and said, Russia is the last remaining Western power of Christianity. He said, America is no longer Christian. We are the last. He was about himself. And he, he said that with pride. And I don't blame him in one sense at that time because it was true. Russia is no longer a socialist communist country. Not to say there aren't socialists and communists in the country, but no longer as an institutionalized nation, it's no longer communist. So Russia's out of the equation. There's only one country. Now, it's interesting. Look what it says here. Look what it goes in verse 43. And he shall have power, being the king of the north, shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver. It means the king of the north is going to control the economy of the world. And he shall have Trevor over, over all the precious things of Egypt. Meaning what? Eventually, the economy of the king of the south will cave in to the king of the north. So what does that imply? There's an economic war going on between the king of the north and the king of the south. And the king of the north is going to win. Now, let me explain to you Trump's presidency. I believe without a doubt in my mind, God put Trump in office. Because it's biblical. It says God sets up kings and he puts them down. Just like God put Obama in the presidency. And I thought Obama was a terrible president. Having said that, it doesn't matter. God put him there for a divine purpose. Now, I don't understand it, but it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. And it doesn't matter if you agree or don't agree. God doesn't seek your permission. Remember, who's ruling in the affairs of men? Who? God. Does God have a divine plan? You think God's ever caught off guard? Seriously, do you think God is, oh, oh, let that one slip by me? He's never caught off guard. You think Satan can pull a fast one on God? As smart as Satan is, you think he can pull one on God? He can't pull a fast one on God. Is God a thousand, a million steps ahead of Satan? A trillion, billion steps ahead of Satan. Right? An infinite number of steps ahead of Satan. He knows the end from the beginning before the beginning ever began. He knows everything. Now, that's a mystery to me. Why would, you know, people say, well, why would he create Lucifer if he knew Lucifer was going to sin? You know? Well, it is, there's an element of it that's a mystery. But remember, God believes in free moral agency. We're free moral agents. We choose our destiny. You don't want to go to heaven, friends. It's not God's fault. It's simply because you chose not to go. That's as simple as that. All right? You don't get there. It's your fault. Not God's fault. So what's happening here? 
In Daniel 11, he's saying that the last days you're going to find two kingdoms fighting for world domination. Both of them are military powers. Both of them are economic juggernauts. One of them, though, is an atheistic, communist, socialist country. And there's only one country in the world that matches up to those identifying marks. There isn't any other. It's China. Now, I want to explain to you Trump's presidency. Listen very carefully. What was happening to the United States prior to Trump being president? We were losing our standing in this world in relation to being a Christian country, or at least in terms of Christianity. Jobs by the, by the tens of thousands of millions were being shipped overseas to China, to Mexico, and everything. We had illegal immigration flooding the country. And what does that do to an economy? Well, think of it this way. Let's say you make $50,000 a year and you've got a household of four people. And even though it's against your own will, we're going to force you to take 50 people in your house and you've got to take care of them. So what happened to your $50,000? You, you're still making 50000 but i got news for you. That money is going to be stretched real thin now, which means you're on overload. And there's only so much time you can take under that stress. And what was happening economically, America was on the verge of utter ruin. Now, prophecy says America will lead out. Prophecy says America will be the leading power. Prophecy says America will be the juggernaut politically, militarily, economically. It just told us that right here. So something had to change. And what did God do? He allowed Trump to be president. Listen, he put him up there for a divine purpose, just like Cyrus. Now remember, representation does not mean salvation. Just because God chose Trump like he chose Cyrus doesn't mean Trump is saved. Doesn't mean he's a born-again believer. I'm not saying he's not. I don't know. I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying, look at the divine plan of God. God is doing something. Now, under his presidency, what has happened to America? He's no longer tolerating what was done before. He's telling every country on the face of the earth, you are no longer going to take advantage of us. We are going to reassert our authority in the place in this world. America will be the leader in this world, economically and, and militarily. And he has spent Billions and billions and billions to rebuild up the military. What does that do? It forces China into a very bad situation. It means they got to continue to spend on their military. But that means they got to maintain an economy that can compete with America. You know who the number one economy is in the world? The United States of America. You know who's second? China. And look at what Trump's been doing with China. What has he been doing with China? He's no longer taking the deals they were getting before. Why? Because China was ripping America off. Friends, if you and I went into business and we were were working out something, and I said, I'll tell you what, every time we do a transaction of business, I get 90%, you get 10%. And you agree to it, it's your fault. You're you're dumb enough because if you accept that kind of an arrangement, that's on you. Don't blame me. Because if you're that gullible to take that deal, it falls on you. And that's the kind of deals America's been taking. Trump says, I'm stopping all of that. I'm not going to take that anymore. So what's happened? A shift has occurred. 
America's no longer laying back in the background. America's now reasserting itself. You see, in order for scripture to come to pass where America must lead out and, and rule the world in terms of its economic military strength, it has to lead the world. It has to be number one. Trump is reasserting America's authority around the world. What's happening, dear friends, is you are witnessing the great struggle between the king of the north and the king of the south. You're watching it all play out before your very eyes. Notice who the Democrats are siding with, China. Why do you think China has come out and publicly said, I want Biden to win? Well, of course they want Biden to win. If you and I were sitting in agreement, again, I'm getting 90% of the deal and you're getting 10%, then this say somebody takes over your position as president. And they say, you know what, that 90-10% deal, that's off the table, no more. Uh, it's 50-50 or, you know, something like that. Now, I liked it better when you were president because I was getting a bigger piece of the pie. And so what's happening is you're seeing a political struggle taking place, listen, indicating a spiritual conflict. Because if you can see scripture correctly, you're witnessing what's happening. You're watching the end of the king of the south. He's, he's going to fall eventually. Economically, politically, he will succumb to the United States the United States will not play second fiddle to any country on the face of this earth. I don't care China or no China. China's going down. Now, how in every aspect, I don't know. And I don't, again, it doesn't, I don't really care. I know it's going to be an economic battle, and that's already going on. We're watching it take place now. And so you and I are witnessing. Now, here's the thing, though. Look at the next thing it says. In verse 44, when the, the, when the king of the north possesses the gold and silver of the king of the south, meaning the economic base of the king of the south, tidings out of the east and out of the north come. What does that imply? Ladder rain, loud cry. What does that mean? What's right around the corner then? The ladder rain and the loud cry. That's right. And But what does James 5 say? It'll all turn to rust. What I'm trying to tell you is this is, a, again, the prelude. You're watching prophecy unfold. But you've got to know what you're watching. And the only way you can watch it is understand what the Word of God says. The king of the north and the king of the south are fighting over world domination. You want to do a little interesting study after the Sabbath tonight? Punch up China versus the United States on the computer, do a Google search and read the articles and you'll find out how many articles there are about China wanting to rule the world and wanting to basically economically control the United States. But that's not what scripture says. That's not what scripture says because in Revelation 13 it says no man can buy or sell. That's just not the citizens of the United States. That's talking about the world. So how can the United States be a secondary power or even lower tier power and make the world obey it? It can't. It has to be the dominant power in the world. Friends, let me tell you this. I, I mean, I, I didn't vote for Trump, and I'm not saying you shouldn't or you should. I'm not, it's not what I'm saying. 
All I'm telling you, though, is this. On the one hand, you've got the king of the south using the Democrats. And there's a reason why they're using them, because, the, because they're being blackmailed. And then you've got the king of the north, who's the papacy. And who's the papacy siding with? The United States of America. You really think the papacy's going to lose? Is that, then you're not reading Revelation 13. Amen. The king of the north is the papacy of USA alliance. The king of the south is, is, is Egypt, an atheistic country, is, 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 is China. And they're fighting the economic battle now. Right here, verses 42 and 43. You're watching it happen. When you see China brought under control economically. Now, it's not going to disappear. It's not going to be conquered. You know, that's not what the scriptures is talking about. But it will be economically controlled. That it will happen. In other words, America's economy will be stronger, much, much stronger than China's. This battle is going to end and America's going to win. And when it does, right around that time, here comes the latter rain, here comes the loud cry. And you know what happens when the latter rain falls? God's people are being sealed. You have any idea um, what that implies? And please, probation is about to close. We are in verse 42 and 43. 44 is about to happen. You know what's going to happen in 45? He shall come to his end and none shall help. Jesus Christ is going to return. Listen to me. I got to close here. I'm telling you. We better get ready. Because, dear friends, I don't know what to tell you. You are watching it happen. The end right before your very eyes. These two powers are contending for world domination. One of them's going to win. And we know, according to prophecy, it's going to be the United States of America. And that's not a good thing. You understand? Because you're looking at the implications. That's not a good thing in one way. You see, that's not a good thing. Because we know what that means. That's right. So, may God help us and may the Lord keep us. And, uh, dear friends, all I can tell you is you keep your eyes on Jesus. Right? Remember, be rational. Calm, right? Take a deep breath. Calm down. Take it Stay focused. Don't become a fanatic. Don't listen to strange voices. Stay with the good old Adventist message. Don't lose sight of, of, our, of, our, of our truth. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you. We pray that you please bless us and keep us. And may your angels watch over us. Help us to remember, dear Lord, your loving kindness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, everybody.